The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. If I were to say to you, the king of rock and roll, you would say Elvis Presley. If I were to say, who'd you say? John John, hey, I'm right there with you. I like that one a lot better. If I were to say to you, the king of pop, who would you say? Michael Jackson. If I were to say to you, the king of the Whopper, you would say, the Burger King. All right. I'll stop right there because today we come to our text and we come to a different king altogether. He's the king of the Jews. And we just sang a song, Jesus, you are Lord of all. It felt almost sacrilegious or blasphemous to open talking about Michael Jackson or Elvis Presley or even Johnny Cash this morning in the same context of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. However, there are those who are around us every single day who may even be in this room today who would lump him into the same category. That he simply is a man in history who has made some significant impact, but he really has no kingdom of his own. In fact, they look at his life and they look at the passage that we're going to look at this morning and they see they they, they say there that, look, his life failed. It came to a tragic end. He didn't accomplish really anything that he set out to accomplish. In the end, his disciples scattered and they all fled and ran away and he was crucified there very cruelly on the cross and placed into a tomb. So really, how today could we call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Well, there's a line in that song that we just sang that is also fitting. It is written, he is risen. He is Lord of all. Let's look at this passage together this morning. I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Beginning in verse 1, we will read verses 1 through 20 today. If you're turning there, let me just tell you that we've been in Mark now for two years, and um, the preaching schedule is set, Lord willing, unless something changes, we will finish the book of Mark the Sunday after Easter. Uh, It works out well that chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, is the resurrection passage, and we will be looking at that together on Easter morning, and then the following few verses that remain in Mark will be the Great Commission, and we will look at how the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ changes everything. And so we know that the course is set over the next seven or eight weeks where we are going unless God himself intervenes. And if he does, that's perfectly okay. So just know that up front. But let's look at this passage together. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. By the way, when Jesus says here, You have said so, he is not being flippant or obscure. It's, it's the same thing Jesus said to Judas in the upper room when Judas looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, is it, is it me? Am I the one who will betray you? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. It was an idiom or an expression of the day that meant 
definitively, yes, you have said it with your own mouth. Jesus here is claiming to be king. Verse 3, and the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they would, they would ask. They asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd, the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Now, he assumes here the logical thing to do would be that they would say, yes, give us Jesus when you hold him up to Barabbas. Verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowds to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged, having him scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. This was about 600 men. 600 men come. We picture the scourging of Jesus and the mocking of Jesus being just a few Roman soldiers standing around having a good time at his expense. This is as many as 600 that are gathered together here to scourge and to mock the king, not only of the Jews, but the king of kings and lord of lords. 17, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Today, I want to show you in this passage Four different perspectives of who this Jesus is. Pilate asks a very important question, probably the question that everyone who will ever live or who has ever lived will have to deal with at some point in their lifetime. Pilate asked the question when they were calling for Barabbas. He says to them, then what shall I do with this man whom you call the king of the Jews? And I would pose to you that that is the greatest question of yours in my lifetime, we must settle this. We must answer this question. We can say, what must we do about the economy? What must we do about the Middle East? What must we do about the youth of America? What must we do about all of these things? And they are important, but they fall short in comparison to this question. Those, those questions will have little significance on eternity. This question, what must you do? What will you do with this man who is called King of the Jews has everything to do with eternity.
Let me show you four different perspectives here. The first perspective I want to show you is that of the council. The council. This was in the morning after they had had their illegal trial through the night. These 71 members of the Sanhedrin, the council, the official body of the Jews, gathered together officially in the morning. There had probably been not all 71 there in the middle of the night. But here in the morning, to keep things, quote, legal, they will gather them together and pronounce their sentence in the morning. They've already pronounced the sentence on him at night, but now they they want to again try to hide behind their law, hypocrites as they are, breaking it at some points, yet being sticklers for it in others. They meet back together in the morning. Why? Why do they do this? Well, the council saw Jesus as someone who had to go, someone who was in the way. He threatened their power. They were the they were the powerful arm of Judaism. They controlled it all. They were the ones who the rest of the nation looked to. And Jesus threatened that. Not only that, but Jesus challenged their expectations of what the real Messiah would be. He didn't fit the bill. He didn't come with power. He didn't come mounted on a steed ready to free them from the tyranny of Rome. Instead, he came preaching peace and poor and very meager. He was, there was nothing about him that would cause us to say he is God. Not only that, but he revealed to them, he exposed to them their own hypocrisy. He exposed it not just to them, but he held it out in the bright light of day for the rest of the Jewish people to see that they were hypocrites, that they were playing with the law. And they were threatened by it. Perhaps I would say to you this morning that maybe Jesus is in your way as well. For them, Jesus was something that just had to go. I read one commentator saying this this week as I read, he spoke of an African chief. In this, this particular tribe, there had been really no technology, no modern um, comforts had come to this particular tribe or this village. And a missionary had gone to this tribe and this missionary in, in his particular dwelling place, in his hut, he had on the outside, on the doorpost, he had hung there a mirror. And it was there for his shaving periodically or whatever the case may be. One day the chief of the tribe came by and he looked into that mirror and the chief for the first time in his life saw himself. And he saw what what he looked like and he saw the paint and the ugliness and the scariness of who this person was. And he went to this missionary and he knew enough not to steal and he said, I will buy this from you. What will you sell this to me for? And the missionary thought, and he said, I don't want to sell this thing. The chief was persistent, and he said, well, I'll take this for it. They made the exchange, and immediately upon making the exchange, the chief of the tribe took the mirror and slammed it against the ground, breaking it into hundreds of pieces. Why did he do that? He did that because the image that was reflected there was so ugly that he could not bear it, that it had to be destroyed. And I think that's what it was for these members of the council. Jesus to them showed them who they really were. And for them, he was just someone in the way. He just had to go. He had to be destroyed. In the middle of the night, they had said, 
we've got to find a way to execute him. They had already made their mind up. Maybe for you, maybe Jesus also is in your way. Maybe he keeps you from being what you want to be or doing what you want to do. In the way of a certain life choice or a life pursuit. Maybe you could have more money, but it would require you to to break the rules. And you know Jesus condemns that. And if you could just get rid of Jesus, then you could do whatever you wanted to do. And you'd be successful and you would climb the ladder. Maybe there's someone who is close to you and it's somebody else's spouse. But what does that matter? Well, it matters because Jesus has talked about the fidelity of marriage. If you could just get rid of Jesus, then you could pursue that relationship. Maybe Jesus is in your way. And right now you come this morning having already held a council. You have convened together, maybe with yourself, maybe with friends, maybe with co-workers. You have passed judgment and you are ready to bind Jesus and to turn him over. I would say to you, be careful who you're holding counsel with. What do we do when when there is something that we really want to do, but we really know that we should not do it? Who are the people that we seek counsel from? We seek counsel from those that we know will tell us what we want to hear. The Bible talks about that there is wisdom in counsel, but it is to be godly counsel. Today, maybe you're here and you are like the council and you say, yes, I understand this whole Jesus thing. I understand Christianity. I I understand the church, but really he's in my way. And if I'm going to get where I want to get, he's got to go. And you're ready to bind him and turn him over. You're ready to walk away from godly friendships. You're ready to walk away from attending church where you hear the word of God regularly. And you will justify it and you will say, you know, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And that is true. And you don't have to come to a physical location to be a Christian. But I'm telling you that if you truly are a Christian, you will want to be with God's people. Because first John talks about the fact that one of the marks of him truly having hold and sway over your life is that there is a love for the brothers and sisters. And before you do as the council has done in our passage today and bind him and deliver him and hand him over, I'm asking you, I'm begging you to repent. To turn from what you are about to do. It is still in this moment, a moment of grace being extended to you. Would you turn from it? Would you unloose Jesus, if you will? And submit to his authority over your life. And quit viewing him as someone who is simply in your way. And find that he truly is the way. The perspective of the council was that Jesus was simply in their way. And he had to go. There's a second perspective I want you to see. And it is that of Pilate. To Pilate, Jesus was someone to avoid. Now this is different. Not just I mean, the, the council is malicious here and they are they are wanting to murder Jesus. But Pilate here is drug into the process because he happens to be the official Roman representative over the region. And his job, part of his job is to, to command the military, to oversee the funding in that part of the, 
the, the, the, the Roman Empire, but also to judge in matters like this. And he really doesn't want to have anything to do with it. You've got to understand a little bit about Pilate first. Pilate was heavy-handed. And Pilate was really self-confident and bold and brash. And, and he came in as this leader and he respected none of the thoughts and the ways of the Jewish people. And he came in and he did things that got him into a lot of trouble. And for instance, one time when he came in, he wanted to make a great showing as he came into Jerusalem. So he had the soldiers carry these flags. And on the flags were images of Caesar. Well, Caesar in that day was viewed to be a god. Well, to the Jewish people, this was considered idolatry. And others before Pilate had avoided this. They had not done this out of respect for the Jewish people. But here, Pilate comes in and he carries these in in a bold, brash way and says, I don't care what they think. I'm going to do this. Another time, he, there wasn't very good water in the area. And he wanted to build an aqueduct system. And so he didn't have the funding for it. So instead, what he did is he went to the temple treasury and he robbed out of the temple treasury money to pay for this aqueduct that he wanted to build. And that money was Corbin. It was meant to be used for the worship of God alone. And this ruined him with the people of Israel. They hated him. The Jewish people absolutely hated him. Rome had warned him multiple times, do not let anything like this happen. If an insurrection, if a riot happens on your watch, it will be your head. And so Pilate here is drug into the middle of this. And if he wants to keep his position, if he wants to keep his role as governor, then he's got to do what the Jews say. But there's a problem. They want to crucify Jesus, but there's a problem. He knows that Jesus is an innocent man. And his conscience comes into play here. And he says, but why? What, what evil has he done? He wants to avoid making any type of decision here. In fact, his own wife comes to him and slips him a note. And that very night, she had had a dream saying, don't have anything to do with this man called the king of the Jews. So he, wants to, he wants to avoid Jesus at all costs. He doesn't want to have to make a decision here. So he comes up with this plan. It's a plan that's already been in place. There's this model. There's this ritual. He started this to win back some of the favor with the people. And so he says, you know, I have this tradition of releasing to them one prisoner every year. They're calling for me to crucify Jesus. But if I hold up Jesus next to Barabbas, who is a murderer and a thief and an insurrectionist, next to Jesus, who is peace-loving, teacher, healer, miracle worker, surely between the two they will choose to release Jesus. Ah, it's a good plan. Surely they would not choose to release Barabbas. But that's what they did. His plan backfired on him and they called to release for us Barabbas. So finally, in a desperate act, when he knows he has no other course of action, he has them bring to him a basin of water. And in this basin of water, he symbolically before the people stands and he washes his hands in this water. And he looks at them and he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. His blood be on you. 
And the Jewish people began to cry out, His blood be on us and on our children, which has led to a lot of anti-Semitism throughout the years. Right up to the end, Pilate tried to avoid Jesus. He did everything he could to avoid making any kind of decision, any kind of judgment about this man they called the king of the Jews. Maybe that's you here today as well. Maybe you sit here today and religion is fine for other people. But you're just not that kind of person. I mean, you're smarter than that. You're a thinker. You're intellectual. How could anyone give their lives to that? If they want to do that, that's fine for them. But not you. And you don't want to have to make any sort of decision about him. You just want to avoid him. There are times when maybe today here or in services in the past or conversations with other believers, you have felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit that Jesus truly is the Messiah, that he truly is the Son of God, that he really did come live a perfect life and die on the cross and was raised after three days and is really coming again. But you had those thoughts, but you suppressed them and pushed them down and say, I I don't want to deal with that now. And I would tell you that just as Pilate could not avoid making a decision about Jesus, he may have said, his blood be on you, but in doing so, he pronounced judgment. Because they couldn't execute. It was against their laws to execute anyone. He had to. And in so doing, when he convicted Jesus and sent him away, he made the worst decision of his life. In fact, the history of Pilate's life from this point on, he continues to reign for several years. But in the end, he commits suicide. And I wonder if it had to do anything with the haunting of this decision, this moment. Maybe today you are here thinking, I'll do it later. I'll, I'll do it later. I'll turn from my sins. I'll trust Christ later on. I've got a lot of living left to do. Let me tell you something. The decision is not yours to make. When God comes calling, respond. You cannot avoid the decision. You cannot avoid making a judgment or dealing with Jesus forever. You will deal with him now or you will deal with him then. And I would challenge you to turn from your sins and trust Christ. To Pilate, he was someone simply to avoid. The third perspective I want to show you today is Barabbas. That of Barabbas. Barabbas, to to Barabbas, Jesus was simply someone to exploit. To take advantage of. There is no record after this of Barabbas. We don't know really what happened to Barabbas after this. Very little is written of him. He comes out of prison that day and he simply seems to ride off into obscurity in history. He benefits from Jesus that day. Jesus takes his place. But there is no record that Barabbas ever said so much as thank you, let alone that he ever repented. Or believed. No record whatsoever. It's a beautiful picture of what God has done for us in Christ. Just as Barabbas was there in prison rightfully. He was on record as a thief. On record as a murderer. On record as an insurrectionist. A leader of revolt or treason. 
He deserved to die. He deserved the death penalty. He deserved crucifixion. Just as Barabbas was there rightfully. Look at me. So are you. So am I. Every single person on the planet is also guilty of thievery. Whether you have stolen something outright or whether you have simply stolen the glory that is only due to God, you are guilty as a thief. Every single person is guilty of murder. Whether you are guilty of murder outright or whether you have hated someone or whether you have killed the image of God in you. Every single person in this room, every single person on the planet, you are also guilty of leading rebellion. Rebellion against the very throne of God. And you have chosen to go your own way and reject His authority over your life. And for that, it's not... It's, we, we want to paint it in pictures of why would God hold us guilty for something as simple as taking fruit from a tree. It's more than that. It's the bigger picture. It's the fact that we have revolted against our king. And the beautiful picture here that Barabbas gives us is the fact that Jesus here takes his place. Barabbas didn't deserve it. No one in the crowd that day was saying, you know, Barabbas is probably innocent. Give us Barabbas. No one said, you know, it was trumped up charges. He's been framed. Nobody said that. Everyone knew he was guilty. Yet they called for his release. And Jesus, the one who had gone about doing nothing but good, who had resisted temptation, who had never even exploited his own authority, his own person for his own personal gain, went and took his place. It's a beautiful picture of what God does for us in Christ. That you and I deserve to feel the full weight of the wrath of God for all of eternity. We deserve hell. Absolutely, we deserve hell. You may be sitting here today and say, I've not done anything to deserve anything like that. And I would tell you that according to judging yourself, comparing yourself against other people, probably not. If the Supreme Court of this land is the judge, then probably you are correct. But if the judge is altogether holy, then every single one of us, and I don't point just at you, I point at myself, we are all deserving of the full weight of the wrath of the holy, just God of the universe. But Jesus Christ who knew no sin, became sin for us. He went to the cross. He took the punishment. He took the shame. He took not only the physical pain, but He took the separation with His Father. What you deserve, He took. So that what you get now, when you trust Christ alone, as you become a joint heir with Jesus in what He has received after being resurrected. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no judgment coming to you. 
If you are in Christ, you are free indeed. To come to Jesus that way, to, to receive what he has done and allow him to take your place at Calvary so that you might be free, so that you might go from being a son of Adam to a son of God. That's not exploitation, as long as you come by faith. But I would, I would venture to say that there are people who come and sit in this room and in rooms all over the South and all over America and probably all over the world and sit through Christian church services and they come and they take His name only. They don't come by faith. They come seeing Him as something that will profit them. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe He helps you in relationships or maybe He helps you in business. Maybe He gets your wife off your back if you'll just show up every week. Maybe you gain respect in your children's eyes or your grandchildren's eyes because you come and you sit and you take His name. But if all you're doing is simply taking His name for your own personal prophet, you are Barabbas. You are using Him. Your freedom that you think you are earning and receiving in this life will only be in this life. There will be no freedom in the next because He will say to you upon entering eternity, depart from me. I never knew you. It's interesting that the name Barabbas Bar Abbas means son of the father. And on that day, the crowd chose the son of the father, Adam, over and above the son of father, God. To Barabbas, he was something simply to exploit. The fourth perspective I want to show you today is this. The perspective of the soldiers. To the soldiers, he was someone to simply mock. I know I've not spent a whole lot of time walking through the Scriptures today. But turn with me and look, look at verse 15. In verse 15, the soldiers began to mock him. Here, Pilate turns him over to be scourged. Scourging was horrible. It was horrific. The worst you could imagine would not be anywhere close. You've heard of the scourging with the cat of nine tails, with the 39 lashes, the 40 minus one. And that was really reserved. And I've preached this wrong for a number of years. That was really reserved for crimes less than this. Punishment carried out by their own nation. Here we're talking about Rome. Here we're talking about 600 soldiers chomping at the bit to get at the flesh of Jesus. And they would take this cat of nine tails. And they would, would have these strands of leather. And it would have sewn into the ends of these strands of leather pieces of sharp bone and metal. And they would take that. And I apologize for the gruesome nature of this, but 
they would take that whip and they would they would bear the criminal's back. And they would take turns on either side. There would be two that would flog him. And they would wrap those strands of leather around his back. They would come all the way around to the front at times and grab into the, the front of the, the abdomen and the, the pectoral region of, of the, the body. And those pieces of bone and metal would snag into flesh. And when they would rip it away, it would pull pieces of flesh with it. Oftentimes the Bible says that bone and entrails were often exposed. The person would often die from this alone. It was probably done to speed up the process of dying. Verse 16, it says the whole battalion. I've already told you 600 men come together. 600 men. And they put on him, in verse 17, a purple cloak and a crown of thorns. After they've, after they've whipped him and his, he's already from the garden, from his time there in the garden, he's already just covered in sweat and dirt from agonizing in the ground. His clothes are stained with a bloody sweat because he sweat drops of blood. He's been spit on. His face is purple and black from the slaps and the punches to his face. And now they have stripped him of his clothes and he stands there before them exposed. And they have ripped his back to shreds. And now they take an old cloak. And they take this cloak and it's purple. One, one writer says that it's scarlet, but it was the color of royalty. And they place it over him. And they take these thorns, these strands or these vines that have thorns in them. And they, they weave them together and they make this crown. And they press this crown onto his head. And they take a reed and they put the reed in his hand. And then they begin to kneel before him and they say what they would have been required to say to their officials over them. But they do it in a mocking tone. They say to Jesus as they bow before him, Hail, King of the Jews! And as they're getting up, they would strike him and spit on him and take the reed that was in his hand and they would strike him in the head and the face. After this, the Bible says in verse 20 that they stripped him. They put his clothes on, his own clothes back on. Just think of the shame there, even in the fact that they, they undressed him, dressed him mockingly, undressed him, and then dressed him in his old clothes once again. Think of the shame that comes just from being exposed before other people. They led him out to crucify him. And quite possibly, this may be less people in the room today, but quite possibly, maybe there's someone here today that this is how you view Jesus as well. Jesus to you is nothing more than someone to mock. Just someone to make fun of, just someone to laugh at. You would say things like, how in the world can anyone be so stupid as to give their life, the only life that they have, in pursuit of following this man who obviously failed in the end. Yesterday, as I was preparing for this, I just went online, and I would not advise you to do this because I got angry at the computer screen as I watched Bill Maher just rail on the stupidity of Christians. And to mock 
the idea of a triune God. To make fun of and to categorize it in the fact that God the Father sent His Son, wink, wink, on a suicide mission. There are those out there who think that that Jesus is something we should just mock and laugh at. They, They chalk Him up to every other religion out there and religion is for those who are weak-minded and why don't they just get on with their lives? And maybe that's you here today. Well, I would challenge you today. I don't know. I I can't convince you today. But here's what I would say to you. This is not the end. Jesus Christ may well here be seen suffering He will be seen on the cross. They will drive nails through his hands. They will shove a spear into his side. They will pull his lifeless body down and they will place it into a tomb. But I'm telling you that it is not the end. And three days later, he came out of the tomb. He walked out of the tomb. The Father was pleased with His actions and validated that by raising Him from the dead. You see, I started out by saying this. What do you think about Jesus? What's your perspective of Jesus? I've given you four perspectives. The council, Pilate, Barabbas, and now the soldiers. They all thought one thing or another about Jesus. But in the end, let me tell you something. It doesn't really matter what they thought about Jesus. In the end, today, here, it doesn't matter what you think about Jesus. I mean, it matters to you. But it doesn't matter to him in this sense. It will not change his identity one bit. What you think of who he is doesn't change him at all. Jesus is truly God. But what you think about Jesus and what you do with Him, while it may not change His identity one bit, it is the sole single factor that will determine your destiny. It does change your identity. You go from being dead in your sins, following the power of the prince of the air, to being made alive, being forgiven, being made right before God, being adopted into the family of God, having a home forever with God. So I would ask you today, what will you do With this man, whom they call the King of the Jews. Let's pray together. God, today we come to the end of this service, the close of this service. And God, I pray, God, that you would be merciful. God, that you would indeed save those who are dead in their sins today. That you would call them out of darkness and into light. God, I pray that you'd be merciful. 
God, that you would build your church, that you would conform us to the image of Christ. God, that you would be powerfully at work among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to reflect on this for just a minute, just 30 seconds or so. We want you just to think about what it is. Spend some time talking with God and saying, God, based on what I've heard today and seen in your word, what does this require of me? What do I have to do from this point forward, God? What do you want me to do in obedience to this? And then I'll come up in just a few seconds or a minute or so, and I'll be here at the front, and I would love to receive you. If today you're here and you need today to turn from your sins and trust Christ, I would love to show you how. If today you are here and you've been attending for a while and you know this is the church where God's leading you to join, then come. I'd love to receive you. We'd love to have you today make that public. If today you're here and you are a believer and you're struggling with something and maybe you just need someone to pray with you, I'd love to pray with you. Maybe if you're not a believer here and you're not there yet, but you just need someone to pray with you about the perspective that you have toward Christ, maybe you need to begin a dialogue. Maybe you're not ready to come and publicly profess Him today, but you'd like to know more, then come, talk to me. Whatever it is that God is showing you and leading you to today, we invite you to respond obediently and see His power in your life. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.